Well, good morning, and uh, welcome to Grace Harvest Baptist Church. I hope most of you were able to be here for uh, the business meeting, uh, the annual State of the Church that we had, and uh, what a blessing it is when you have a visitor who, who tells you during the time before the service who was here during our Sunday school hour, and they, they, they expressed to me how wonderful it was to be part of, of that time and to get to know this church and its people and how blessed they were about the way we do things here. That's an encouragement. And, you know, uh, for me, I, I, I heard another comment. Someone says, you know, it's just amazing that, that things are done here the way they are. And, and you know, I, I want to take all the credit for it. Like, oh, wow, I'm, I'm awesome. <laughs> has nothing to do with me. It has everything to do with this. Everything to do with this. It's, it's like you open this up, and Paul says, appoint elders. Sheep, believers, yield yourself to the authority of, of the shepherds that God puts over you. And when you do that, and when the shepherds are shepherding with the right heart and attitude, then you see God glorified, and his people grow in faith. And that's what you see here. You want to know when a church is not doing what it's supposed to, when the leadership is not doing what it's supposed to do? is when you see selfishness and bitterness and backbiting. That's when you see that occur. Well, today we're going to talk about biblical servanthood. Biblical servanthood. And if you turn in your Bibles with me to 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 8 through 12. For those who are regular here, you know that Pastor Mark and, uh, has preached and preached out of the book of Matthew for almost three years. We went through that uh, verse by verse, uh, chapter by chapter. We went through that, and then I, I, then I went through first, uh, Romans 12 and then 1 Corinthians 13, and this Sunday I'm preaching on, on 1 Timothy. Next week, I will begin a 10-week series on end times, 10 weeks, and during that 10 weeks, you will hear about the rapture the very first week, and then you will hear about the five-part five, uh, sermon, sermon within a sermon on the tribulation period. We'll be talking about the Antichrist and the false prophet and the three and a half years of halfway peace and then the three and a half years of the Great Tribulation and all that time uh, God pouring out the judgments on His people. We will go through all of that and then we will see the second coming of Christ and then we will see the Battle of Armageddon and we will see the Millennial Period and we'll see right before the Millennial Period how the two first inhabitants of hell are thrown in there. There is nobody in hell at this time. They're in the holding place. And in, uh, we are told that, that uh, the Antichrist and the false prophet will be the first cast into the lake of fire. They are the first two. And then the millennial period of a thousand-year reign of Christ, where you and I as believers will reign with Christ. And then at the end of that, there will be one more rebellion. It's hard to believe, but even at the, in a perfect... That's why I always laugh at people when they say, well, if we just tried this system of government, everything would be fine. Well, Christ will be king and he will have his kingdom set up during the millennial kingdom we he will rule with an iron fist you will rule with him and at the end of that time there will be rebellion at the end of that and then there will be a new heaven and a new earth and a final judgment we go all through that i hope you don't miss it i hope that was a little bit of a teaser that you everybody likes to hear about what's going to happen right so we're going to go look at the biblical and it's it's one of those mysteries that i'll talk about later on in the sermon it is a mystery to the unbeliever. It's not a mystery to you and I. God gives us that so that we will rejoice in His Word and not be afraid of death and what is to come. Luther, his faith became sight today. He passed away uh, Saturday morning. His faith became sight. I love what Pastor Cal said. I didn't say it during the first service, but I'm going to go ahead and say it this time. We have that very same sign. Pascal has in his house, we have in ours, and ours is over our dining room window. The sun comes up there every morning, and it's a reminder to Kathy and I that our Lord loves us enough that he died for us. He died for me. We sang that song this morning. My sins are many, but his mercy is more. Christian, do you realize this morning, if you're gathered here, you have no fear of death? You have no fear of judgment. You have no fear of hell. You have the only thing you have to look forward to is eternal life of peace and joy and contentment in a perfect body where sin is no more. 
that when, when Luther and every other believer you ever knew, when they took that last breath and the spirit left them and the body, that case of a body, that's all these are, it's just they hold our spirit to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. If you are a Christian here this morning, you have no fear of death. That's why Paul continually talked about it as sleep. That we, and, and there is no soul sleep. He used that as a euphemism. He just saying when we leave this place, we're in the presence of God. Those who grieve and mourn are the ones that are left here. And understandably so. We miss our brothers and sisters. We miss our mothers and fathers. We miss our relatives. But yet one day we who will belong to him will reunite. And if you don't know him this morning, you're walking through life right now and you think that that what Pastor Mark is talking about, I, I equate it to me and driver's ed back in the dark ages. Back in 1973. You guys remember this. The guy with the projectionist, the guy, job I always wanted, I could never get. He rolled in there with the little projector and he put it in the in the driver's ed classroom and he put the I'm talking about film film okay and he would roll that up and he would and he would and the film would come up and you'd see these wrecked cars and we were like oh that's so cool look at that oh we get to see a dead body or something that's so awesome because what guess what it was never gonna happen to me that's for that other fool that's for that other idiot there's some of you sitting here this morning thinking that you're gonna live forever and you're not Young person, teenager, you who've rejected Christ so far and just say, I got plenty of life to live. You never know when God will call someone home. Today you have breath, tomorrow you may not. If you were to die today without, whatever your, whatever your parents may think, whatever your friends may think, your decision has to be with you. Today, can you say beyond a shadow of a doubt that you knew if you would die, you'd be in heaven forever? It's really simple. The Bible says to confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, to believe in your heart that he raised him from the dead and you will be saved. That's it. It's that simple, but yet so deep. Because once you receive Christ as Savior, you are changed. You are transformed. Your life is different. You have a desire and a hunger for his word. You have a desire and hunger to be obedient to his word. You love him and you love his people. Is this something you're making up, Pastor? No, go to 1 John and he'll tell you exactly what it is. If you love me, you keep my commands. If you love me, you love your brothers and sisters in Christ. If you love me, you love me. That's how you tell if you belong to him, if you're his. And if you can't say that this morning, if you were to die today, you would spend eternity in hell apart from him. And he desires all that would be saved. Repent and believe, the Bible says. And once we do that, we're called to an act of service. And today we will set three men aside at Grace Harvest. We take that very seriously here. We will set it aside and say to that, before this body that these men have been tested and found approved to serve this fellowship. David Livingston was a pioneer missionary to Africa who walked over 29,000 miles during his missionary trips. His wife died early in their ministry and he faced stiff opposition from his Scottish brethren back home. And this was his prayer. Quote, send me anywhere, only go with me. Lay any burden on me, only sustain me. Sever any ties, but the tie that binds me to, you, to your service and to your heart. You feel that way this morning, Christian? Do you feel that you can do anything and go anywhere as long as God is with you? Do you, do you encourage that God give you any burden, but ask Him to be the one that sustain you? Do you wish to sever any ties but the tie that binds you to him and his service to him. You see, that's mature Christian faith. is a heart that desires to serve. And I ask you this morning, as I preach to the deacons, but to the church as a whole, as I preach to you, my brothers and sisters in Christ, I want you to realize something this morning. As I go through these qualifications for deacon, I want you to understand, just as I as I when I spend time with the men, either one-on-one -on -one or I go through, I'm going through with several men right now, the measure of a man. I've gone with it in a group setting. And when you do measure of a man, I, one of the things I tell the men, you may not be a deacon at this time and you may not be an elder at this time. 
You may not be, but this is what every Christian, man and woman, young person, should strive to be. This is your model, is what I will read here just in a moment. So if you would stand with me as we honor the reading of God's Word, if you are able, and we will be beginning in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 8 through 12. Deacons, likewise, must be dignified, not double-tongued, not indulging in much wine, not fond of dishonest gain, but holding to the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. And these men must also be, first be tested, then let them serve as deacons if they, are if they are beyond reproach. Women must likewise be dignified, not malicious gossips, but temperate, faithful in all things. Deacons must be husbands of only one wife, leading their children in their households well. For those who have served well as deacons obtain for themselves a high standing and great boldness in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. Father, we thank you, Lord, for allowing us the privilege to gather here in freedom this morning. I thank you, Father, for the business meeting, so-called business meeting, Father, that that we have and we gather together as a people to discuss the business of your church. And yet, Father, we know it's much more than that, and we give you thanks for that. I pray, Father, now as your people gather in the stillness of this hour, Lord, that, that your people would search their own hearts, Father, just as I have searched mine in the preparation of this sermon. I pray, Father, that those that need to be encouraged this morning would be encouraged. I pray for the one who needs to be convicted this morning that they be convicted. And I pray, Father, for the one who does not know you as Lord and Savior, that this very hour they would receive your Son as Savior. Father, I ask all this in the precious name of your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you. So Paul, here in this letter to Timothy, this young pastor, he's telling them, what the qualifications must be to serve as a deacon. Just prior to this, he had listed what the qualifications were to be uh, for an elder. And the main difference between elders and deacons is that God requires that an elder be able to teach. They must be able to teach, to proclaim his truth, to, 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 to speak the mysteries of the faith that we'll talk about in just a moment. And this morning, Paul gives the church nine qualifications for deacons. And I hear the groans as I say nine, because most of you know the pastor barely gets through four in an hour. But don't worry, uh, it, will, it can be and will be done. So there are nine qualifications for deacons. They are dignified, and if you're writing, taking notes, they'll be, brought, they'll be brought up every time I go through one of these. So dignified, he must be sincere. He must be sober, not greedy, mature in the faith, blameless, have a godly wife, be a one-woman man, and manage their home well. This is, as I said earlier, not just for deacons, so please don't go, well, I don't have to listen now. Just talking to the deacons this morning. This is for all of us as believers, and all of these qualities is what we should strive for. So let's look at the first one, dignified. The word dignified is defined as having or showing a composed or serious manner that is worthy of respect. Let me say that again. Webster defines it as the word dignified is defined as having or showing a composed or serious manner that is worthy of respect. Essentially, deacons must be serious about the faith and serving God. They must be serious. They must take with their responsibility in a serious way. And, and their service for God at all, at all times. They conduct themselves in such a manner that others respect and desire, desire to imitate because of their behavior. When you look at a deacon at uh, Grace Harvest, I would expect you to see a man who exhibits these qualities that I'm talking about today. And one that you can look up to and imitate. Not like there's something special. Not that they lord over you in any way but that they are there to serve you. One of the things here at Grace Harvest is that we uh, take the biblical mandate for deacons very seriously. The deacons are set aside to serve the body, not rule over the body. They are not to, uh, to the same role as an elder is. They are, they are not in that sense in the leadership role. Now, we, we have our elder meetings, and we allow all the deacons to attend them. It's not required that they attend. 
but we'd like for the deacons to come so that they can see that there's nothing hidden to them or to you, the public, uh, or excuse me, the congregation, that we are, we are an open book, and yet the elders are the ones that make those final decisions. Unanimously have to be approved by six elders, not by the current 12 deacons. And yet these deacons hold a very important place. When the church was first started, and there was a, a cry that ran out within the church between the Hellenists and the Jews that were there. And uh, what was the complaint? Well, the Hellenists were, were Greeks who became Jews or Greek-speaking Jews who uh, were felt like they were being looked at as less than their counterparts, the Hebrews. And so basically what happened was they came, they had a complaint. And they came to the, to the elders, they came to the apostles, and they said to the apostles, hey, we got a problem. Our ladies are being uh, not treated the same way as your widows. We who speak Greek are not being treated the same as you who speak Hebrew. And so the, the apostles basically said, we ain't got time for this. Okay, that's my paraphrase. And uh, they said, let's let, let you appoint seven men that can go and they can take care of this for them because it is not good that we are to call to wait on tables. You see, there's a distinct distinction between the elders and the deacons. As your shepherd, I am called to spend my time in praying for you, studying of the word, and proclaiming that truth. That is my role as a shepherd. It may sound harsh when you think of that. You say, well, that's all you do. Well, that's not all I do. But that's, that's, if I'm not doing that, I'm not fulfilling my role as a, as a pastor and as a shepherd. And so if, if, if it stayed the way it was back in 2009 when me and Tom and Anthony and Zach and, and uh, back in 07 and, and, we're, and Steve Worley and so many others and, and, and Austin and, and his brother and my kids and uh, they, they, luckily we had all those teenagers around and we would unload that trailer. We'd set up 100 chairs and 20 people would show up, but we'd set up 100 chairs. Every, we were always optimistic and set them chairs up and then we'd put them back down. You imagine if I was still doing that now? First of all, I couldn't do it. I'm 66. But anyway, we're so thankful that we have people in this church. You know that every week these chairs are taken up, right? And uh, they have to be put back down. Men faithfully come, and even some women sometimes set these up, but our deacons make sure all this stuff is taken care of behind the scenes. We could not grow as a church if the pastor and the pastors and the elders had to do all of the work of the church. So God sets them apart. And you see, the deacons must be dignified. They, may, they, they can't be a comic all the time. Now, we have some deacons that are comics, okay? I'm not going to, but they know when to be serious. We've got an elder who likes to be a comic sometimes, but he knows when to be serious. That's the separation. You see, you can't have a man that doesn't understand that, that always wants to be the, the, the one that's always being obnoxious and, and, and always making light of serious matters. That man is disqualified to be a leader in God's church and to be a deacon in God's church. You can't be obnoxious. And, but, but I want to say, clarify also that the person can't be cold and joyless either. There, there's a balance there. But they understand the seriousness of life. You know, when, you, when, when I look at Scripture, I see Jesus as the man of sorrows. So many people try to d display our, our Lord and Savior in so many different. They try to put all these other characteristics onto him that they think he should have had or, or should have and i'm not saying he didn't experience this but he was a man of sorrows because why everywhere he looked he saw men and women going to hell you imagine that burden everywhere jesus went he saw sin and death and dying he had three years of his ministry you think he wasted it going to play golf Fishing, hunting, going shopping, doing you think he wasted that time doing that? You think it, it wasn't serious to him every minute of his life? And we as we are humans, we're not God, I understand that, and we will laugh and we will joke and we will kid around and that's okay, but 
But you must be dignified. Christian, there's a place for it. Where faithful servants are serious about the faith, unfaithful ones are not. Jesus described these unfaithful people when he explained the parable in Luke chapter 12. Luke chapter 12, verse 40, starting in verse 42. Who then is the faithful and prudent steward? Whom his master will put in charge of his servants to give them the rations in the proper time. Blessed is that slave whom his master finds so doing when he comes. Truly I say to you that he will put him in charge of all his possessions. But if that slave says in his heart, my master will be a long time in coming and begins to beat the male and female servants and to eat and drink and get drunk, the master of the slave will come on a day when he does not expect and an hour he does not know and will cut him in pieces and assign him in a place with the unbelievers. Yes, that's Jesus telling that parable. And what he's saying is that, there, that, that, that as Christians, we always need to understand the seriousness of what we have been given to do. You see, Scripture is quite, quite clear. Those that are unfaithful servants, like those ones that we just read, they waste time and they waste the Master's resources. Christian, you are given just the amount of days that God gave you when you were born. He turned that hourglass over on your life. He's the only one that knows. Do you take joy in every day that you wake up knowing that God has given you this day to breathe? This day to serve Him? This day to be dignified? This day to live for Him? To share the gospel with those who may not know Him as Lord and Savior? We are not given immortality in these bodies. They are mortal. Matter of fact, We are warned that the mortal needs to be put away with and done away with. Our bodies will die. It will go away. But one day we will put off the mortal and we will put on immortality. But until that day comes, are we using the master's time and the master's resources that he's given to us? Remember last week when I said every one of us who's a Christian is in the army of God and And we are in the front lines each and every day, wherever you're at, whether it's at home teaching your children, moms, or you're out with other moms, or you're in the world doing that, or you're working ladies outside of the home, men where you work with your families, you're on the front lines, and and don't ever forget who your commanding officer is, and that's Christ himself. In Normandy, the Battle of Normandy, On June 6, 1944, the Allies invaded France to retake Europe away from the Nazis. And uh, Eisenhower, who who was the one who who designed the plan, was ready to take full responsibility for its failure, even wrote a letter. You can read it. Read what he would have said if it had failed. They were predicting high casualty rates amongst the Allied forces. And yet all those men that, that stormed those beaches, and right here we have a monument in Bedford. You know why it's in Bedford? Because so many men were lost from that town. And they went and they served their country and they served for the cause of freedom and they went and they did exactly what they're told. Never, not one of them got to say to Eisenhower, I wonder if you know what you're doing. Uh, excuse me, I don't think my unit ought to be here. I think we ought to be there. As a matter of fact, I don't like the way you did this. Can we go on June the 7th? I don't want to go on June the 6th. And yet, don't we act like that as Christians sometimes? God commands you to be out there in the, in the front lines for him, and you go, well, you know what, God, I'm, just, I'm not ready for that right now. I don't want to do that. I've got more important things to do. Understand that your purpose as a Christian, your purpose, your ultimate Goal is to glorify God and enjoy Him together. How do we glorify God? By being obedient. You deny yourself, you take up your cross, and you follow Him. And He says, get on that, get on that front line. There is no place for retreat for a Christian. There's, there's no desertion in God's army. We're there. And guess what your purpose is? This may shock some of you. Your purpose is to go and die for the cause of Christ. Now, fortunately, we live in a time where we're not going to die violently for the most part. But if that was the case, how many of us would still be willing to be on that front line? You see, God, it's all about Him and not about us. The the founding elders of this church, the elders have come. You people are here now. 
in a hundred years from now, you know what they're going to say? They're not even going to know who I was. They're not going to know who we are. Hopefully they'll remember that this was a place that God had people that came together and wanted Him glorified, His Word proclaimed, and people come to saving faith. And they're still doing that here a hundred years from now if the Lord tarries. Shame on us if it's not happening. We are doing everything we can as elders of this church to prepare the next group of elders, the next uh, group of believers that come up. You, you, you young families, your, your children are that generation that will be giving birth to that generation that will come after that will be here 100 years from now. Will they hear it from you? Will they understand how important it is to be that diligent frontline soldier a deacon must be dignified sincere sincerity is defined as free from pretense or deceit not only must you be dignified christian you must be sincere sincerity is defined as free from pretense or deceit proceeding from genuine feelings it's my desire i i am sincere i'm not saying it with 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 a lying tongue paul says that the deacon cannot be double-tongued he cannot say one thing and do another he must be sincere. They, the, deacons and Christians are people of their word. If there's anything we should trust, it should be a believer who tells us something. You know, I, I, get, I get teased all the time. Jesse Royal, can, he, 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 he pranks me all the time. All the time. And folks, we have been friends since 1986. And I still just sit there and go, oh, yeah, really? And I go, you're stupid. How many times are you going to believe this guy? Well, I believe that people should be sincere. So I will always take you for your word. And I, I, you know, I want to say that about Jesse. Je he, he and I have a great relationship. But I tell you what, when it comes to being serious, he, like all the elders, are dignified and sincere. When it comes to our word. And that means what? It means your yes means yes and your no means no. When you give your word, you don't need to say, I swear on my mother's grave. I don't say, I, I'm telling you the truth, I ain't lying to you. How many times have you said that? I always just think that. I'm not hey, I'm not telling you a lie. Well, why do you have to tell me you're not telling me a lie? Does that mean every other time you talk to me, you're telling me a lie? I'm not lying to you. Okay, so yesterday when you didn't say that, you're lying to me. It should be that when we speak, it should be truth that comes out. Now, the problem is that we're all liars. And so we have really have to work hard on that. And we lie for a bunch of reasons. We lie to make ourselves look good. We may lie to make other people look bad. We lie because we don't want to hurt somebody's feelings. Now, that doesn't mean you get the freedom, kids, to walk up to your parents and say some horrible things. I'm not saying that. What I'm saying is we don't lie. And deacons especially don't lie. They also are not gossipers. We do not gossip. They don't say something to one person and something else to another. They don't, like, like you know, I, hey, they don't walk over here and go, hey, I really like you guys. You're over here on the right side. I like this side, so I'm going to talk to you guys more. I, I don't really like those guys. Get over here, and I go, hey, hey, we don't like these people over here. <laughs> Let's not talk to them. You are the better part of Grace Harvest because you're sitting on the side of my wife. <laughs> I just slipped that one in, baby. You're right. You see how that's a really silly illustration of that, but we all know what I'm talking about. Don't, don't, play that, don't play that game. Be sincere when you talk to people. Don't gossip when people come to you in confidence. One of the things we ask deacons in the, in, in the interview process, in the, in the questionnaire that I handled, can you handle confidential information? Can your wife handle it? you something know do you want to want to run and tell somebody no we should keep that to ourselves when you come to me and you're confiding in me and you say pastor this is between me and you i don't even most of the time i don't even ask the next question but if it's serious enough i will i said do you mind if i share this with the elders because i want them to be praying for you and 99 times out of 100 i'll get a, a firm answer from that and most of the time when i'm with somebody i say you know usually i say hey i won't even tell the elders but can i tell my wife so that we can pray for you together. And again, most of the time, that's an affirmative. But then it goes no further than Kathy and I. There are times when Kathy hears stuff, and she'll walk up to me, and she goes, how long did you know that? And I said, well, babe, for a while, but I wasn't at liberty to tell you. 
We should be able to be sincere, not to gossip, keep confidence. And so I ask you, Christian, are you sincere in your communication with your brothers and sisters in Christ? Do you keep what should be held in confidence to yourself, or do you spread it out? Husbands, do you talk terrible about your wives? Wives, do you talk terrible about your husbands? Do you keep that within the marriage confounds where it should be? And I'm not talking about when there's actual issues that you need to come talk to me about. But again, are you doing it in the right manner? We need to be dignified, we need to be sincere, we need to be sober. Paul says that a deacon cannot indulge in much wine. He is not to be preoccupied with drink, nor to allow it to influence his life. Some may wonder why the Lord did not call for total abstinence. You know, he said, why didn't God just say, no, you can't do it? Well, times have changed. And I want to share a couple of comments here, and then I want to elaborate a little bit more on it. And I want to share with you what Homer Kent said about this subject. He was a seminary professor for 50 years in Grace Theological Seminary. And he writes this about this subject. Quote, it is extremely difficult for the 20th century American, you know, so he wrote it last century, to understand and appreciate the society of Paul's day. The fact that deacons were not told to become total abstinence, but rather to be temperate, does not mean that Christians today can use liquor in moderate amounts. The wine employed for the common beverage was very largely water. I want to stop right here for a second and elaborate. Um, what, what, what I want to share with you is historical references, not just what the Bible has to say, but historical scholars will tell you that even from their own sources that the Romans believed that only barbarians would not cut their wine. These are, these are Romans, pagans, okay? And, they, and so what they would do, if they were serving dinner, they would have a cup, and they would take this cup of wine here, and they would pour half of it wine and half of it water. The alcohol content for the wine of that day was anywhere between 3 and 6%. So let's just say it's the high-end 6%. They didn't have the capability of making wine the way we do, and obviously hard, drink, uh, hard alcohol of 20, 30, 40, 50% alcohol. They didn't, they didn't have it. Just didn't, weren't able to do it then. And so what they would do is they would drink it in half. So obviously, if you have, a, have a, 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 an eight-ounce glass of wine and, and four ounces of its water, well, that's diluted, right? It's going to take you much longer to get intoxicated. Well, the average Jewish person would cut that wine up to ten times. So he would take a cup of wine, and they, and they would take it, and they would pour ten cups. Of, well, folks, you can't get drunk drinking that. You'd be in and out of the bathroom before you ever got intoxicated. And so when I hear people say, well, they drank wine in the Bible, well, sure they did. But they drank, wine was added to water for another reason, to purify it. Did you know that wine was also made in a paste form, that they would keep it in a paste form? And they would pour water in it to make it drinkable? You see, they, but they still had the issue with drunkenness in the Bible because that's why it says do not be drunk with wine. Because there were some people who didn't cut their wine and they would drink and drink and drink. So I, I just want you to understand that. So it's not the same as you drinking a glass of wine today when the alcohol content is 12 to 14 to 16 percent for just that. And you're not cutting it. But yet I'll hear people all the time in their Well, God doesn't say I can't drink. Pastor, you just said that. I said, well, then. All things might be okay for me to do doesn't mean it's profitable for me to do i've had people sit across from me a, a christian woman in particular that that was uh kath and i were at an event sitting across from me and fortunately there were not non-believers over here anywhere and she says so you don't believe that, that christians should drink and i said well let me try to explain myself and she was she was obviously um, made her mind up and as she, as she drinks her wine and as she drinks her third wine and her tongues are getting really loose and and if she was in world war ii the nazis would have won the war but the fact that i mean it was I'm, and i'm sitting there listening to this lady and i said because your freedom in christ to drink you're i'm watching you get inebriated i'm watching you become under the influence which you just said that you're allowed to drink as long as you do not get Intoxicated. What does intoxication mean? It means you're under the influence. And so that, 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 you know, that's where it becomes. And here at Grace Harvest, our deacons and elders commit not to drink. And so 
when I asked, we, we it got brought up at, a, at, at an elders meeting, and, and my concern was, oh, are we becoming too legalistic? I don't want to be pharisaical. If the Bible doesn't say they can't drink, should we still have it in there? And you know what? I was surprised it came from the younger deacons, those men who are, who are not, don't have, their children aren't raised yet and out of the home. They, they, they made a comment, we're glad you didn't remove that. And, and I said, well, why? And they said, well, sober-minded. To be sober-minded. He said, Pastor, what happens if you call me at 2 o'clock in the morning and you allow me to drink as a deacon and I've just sat down with my wife and had two or three glasses of wine? I'm a 185, 200-pound man and I drink three glasses of wine. I'm not, I'm not drunk. But guess what? I can't get behind the wheel of a car. How am I going to come serve this body and serve you if you need me to come out. It can't happen. So, what, what, what I, I, I mean, I said, literally, I, I didn't figuratively, well, excuse me, I didn't literally drop my draw, I figuratively dropped my draw, and I thought, wow, what wisdom came out of these men? I hadn't thought about that. And when you think about that, it's, 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 it's there to, uh, again, God puts this in place so we don't hinder the ministry. <laughs> we don't hinder his witness. Can you imagine if I showed up at your house at 2 o'clock in the morning with alcohol in my breath? Oh, look at those stairs I'm getting right now. Can you imagine if I came, I, well, I was, you know, I, uh, well, Pastor, you got, <laughs> I smell alcohol in your breath. How am I going to minister to you? I'll tell you another story about that I, I used to do civil war reenacting and when i was at one of the one of the things i enjoyed most was sitting around and 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 with the boys my twins and and uh, having that time of fellowship with them and there were some christians in there but there was a young man that i had been ministering to and trying to share the gospel with and he'd been drinking he wasn't intoxicated yet but there was a man there who was a christian and he was intoxicated and he starts talking to this other man the guy told him shut up i don't need to hear from you you're just a drunk Wow. You see, if the world knows, <laughs> the world knows. So again, you know, that's the decision I lay at your feet, Christian. That's the decision I lay at your feet. For me and my house, we've made the decision not to. And here's another thing. I, I, I love the second service. I get to say things I don't get to say the second, first service. I want you to think about this other thing. Please, please. Christian, around young people, don't, don't celebrate your past sin. Please don't do that. Because you know what they're going to start thinking? Well, maybe I'll come to Christ after I have all the fun you had. You're I hear your stories and you regret what you did, but man, it sure does sound like you had fun doing it. I had a friend of mine in the police department he, uh, when I was an SRO before I got promoted. And I remember one time, somebody in school said, hey, we want to bring, they knew uh, Hal was a Christian, and he, he was my sergeant at the time. He said, we want to bring in a, uh, a speaker. He's a Christian, he's a pastor, and he, and he was a gang member, and he did all this stuff, and, he's done, he's, and Hal said, no, I'm not bringing him in. He's not coming in and talk to a student. And they were like, what? Why would I bring somebody in who was a gang member when I've got other people I can bring in here who love Christ and have obeyed him from a young, young life on. I thought, well, that's wisdom. You know why? Because that's what we do, don't we? We always bring that person in that had this horrible life to tell kids not to have a horrible life. Why don't we bring the people in that say, let me tell you how I avoided all this. Let me tell you when I saw my friends get arrested for drunk driving or drug use or, or, or divorce three or four times. You want to tell me? Let me tell you how I avoided that. I avoided it because I was raised in a home that wasn't perfect, but my dad prayed with my mother. My dad loved my mother as Christ loved the church. That I grew up in a home that it was important that I was in church on Sunday mornings. It was important that I was on Juana Wednesday night. It was important that we prayed together. And it was important that we cried together and we worshiped together. And then when I became a man that, that, was, that was impressed upon me so much that I knew that I would do that with my... Why don't we tell those stories? 
Now, I'm not telling you you run from your past, but you can talk about Christ without promoting your sin. I think we all have been guilty of that, including your pastor. Continuing with that quote, the social stigma and the tremendous social evils that accompany drinking today did not attach themselves to the use of wine and common beverages in the homes of Paul's days. Nevertheless, as the church grew and Christian consciousness and conscience developed, the dangers of drinking came to be more easily seen. The principle laid down elsewhere by Paul that Christians should not do anything to cause a brother to stumble came to be applied to the use of wine. Certainly in present-day America, the use of wine by a Christian would, be, uh, uh, excuse me, would abet a recognized social evil and would set a most dangerous example for the young and the weak. To, you, to, to us, Paul would undoubtedly say, no wine at all. Again, that's for you, Christian. That's your conscience. You make that decision. I'm not the church police. So your, your, your role is to see, as you grow in Christ, what, what do I need in my life that helps me to be a better Christian? Erwin Woodward Raymond writes in his book, The Teaching of the Early Church and the Use of Wine and Strong Greek, states it this way, quote, If an individual by drinking wine either causes others to err through his example or uh, abets a social evil which causes others to succumb to its, succumb to its temptations, then the interest of Christian love... Ought, he ought to forgo the temporary pleasures of drinking in the interest of heavenly treasures. You see, that's, that's again, that's what we do. When you think about it, that's what we do all our life as Christians. Have you ever heard they say, well, you, ain't, you can't have any fun. I can't have any fun. No. Look, I, I have fun all the time. Well, maybe y'all don't think I do, but I do. And I don't need to drink to have that fun. Dignified, sincere, and sober. Not greedy for dishonest gain. This would be especially important because deacons often handled the money in the early church. They, this exposed them to special temptations to be dishonest. We can be sure that Judas was not the last treasurer to betray Christ for money. For this reason, deacons must be people with tremendous financial integrity so that they will not fall into Satan's trap in this area. However, again, this is not the only, only true for deacons, but for all of us as Christians. Jesus spoke about money, you realize this, more times than he spoke about heaven and hell? Which means it is of great importance to him how we deal with the riches of this world that we're blessed with. Consider what Christ said in Luke chapter 16, verse 9, about our, our use of finances. And I say to you, make friends for yourself from the wealth of unrighteousness, so that when it fails, they will take you into eternal dwellings. He who is faithful in a very little thing is faithful also in much. And he who is unrighteous in a very little thing is unrighteous also in much. Therefore, if you have not been faithful in the use of unrighteous wealth, who will entrust the true riches to you? A warning to be dignified, to be sincere, to be sober, not to be greedy, to be mature in the faith. Holding for, to the mystery of the faith, which is a clear conscience. I know some of you are thinking right now, what in the world is he talking about? What is a mystery of the faith? A deacon must be mature in the faith. You should be able to go to your, a deacon at Grace Harvest, and he should be able to explain to you what salvation is. He should be able to explain to you what justification it is. He should be able to explain to you what sanctification is. He may not all know all the great doctrines and the deep things of faith that, that a pastor may be expected to know, but that doesn't mean he shouldn't strive to learn those things, just as you should strive to learn those. There's nothing special about me. God has opened up his book for you to know just as much as I know. Now, he may not gift you to proclaim that truth as he has gifted it to me, but that doesn't mean he doesn't want you to be mature in the faith. My purpose is to mature each one of you in the faith. I am a poor pastor and shepherd indeed if all of my word about is feeding you and nothing but, but, but just baby food. Give you a bottle of milk and baby food week after week after week. What good is that, dear one? My role each and every week, my intent in every sermon I preach is to, to, to allow those that are immature in their faith to be in the shallow end, but yet deep enough for you who are mature in the faith that you can grow in the deep end. That's the purpose of the preaching of God's Word each and every week. Maturity in the faith. The mystery of the faith is the New Testament 
Revelation. That's what the mystery of the faith is. The Old Testament saints did not have the mystery of the faith. Why? They were anticipating the coming of the Messiah. You are privileged to know that what Moses did not know in his lifetime. You are privileged to know what Abraham did not know in his life. That's pretty amazing when you stop and think about it. And here we are. God has given us that mystery. Such truth that was not revealed. And I want to share you some of the things of what this mystery encompasses. It encompasses the incarnation of Christ. In 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. It, it, it is of the indwelling of Christ in believers. Colossians chapter 4, verse 26. Of the unity of Jews and Gentiles in Christ. How did that happen? Well, it happens in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 9. Of the saving gospel itself, which is a mystery. Colossians 4, 3. Of lawlessness in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 7. And of the rapture of the church in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. These are mysteries of the faith that God has given to each one of you so you're not in the dark. You know, one of the reasons I'm giving uh, this sermon series and teaching series is more likely a, a better explanation of it on, on our eschatology and what we believe the Bible clearly teaches about that is so that you will be informed and not scared. You know, there is no, when I hear a Christian worried about the coming end, I'm like, what? Why are you worried? Do you realize that you should be praying every day for his return? Okay, now our Presbyterian brothers would disagree with that comment, but that's what Jesus says is you, when we pray like this. We pray for his coming. Do you not pray for his coming? I do. I pray that he would come back. And when, what, what does that mean when he comes back? Whoa, that means that we're raptured. Whoa, when he comes back, what else does it mean? It means that there's a seven-year time of tribulation. And what does that mean? You think global warming is bad now from these people? Wait till God sends down his fire from heaven upon the earth. And we talk about how a third of the earth's forests are burned up. We talk about how a third of the oceans are burned up. When we talk about a third of man being killed. We're going to go through these numbers. It's gonna, and we honestly can say we, Lord... Please come. We should not be in fear of that. Matter of fact, if you're like me, you think you're something special. I've said this before. I think God's coming back in our lifetime because I think I'm special. But I think all believers thought that. You know, Paul thought that. Paul thought Jesus was coming back. I think every believer has ever thought that. Just be ready for his return. Realize one thing, Christian. You are in your last days. You ain't getting any more. God's given you these amount of days. What is a man's life? But 70 or 80 years. That's it. And if you're blessed to live that long, and maybe a little bit longer, once you're over 80, you were living on borrowed time, folks. And when that day comes, when God finally calls us home, and we go home to be with Him, to be absent from bodies, present with the Lord. Maturing in faith understands these things. I was sitting there explaining it to somebody just the other day, and, and uh, they looked at me and said, man, you've got so much knowledge, Pastor. And I'm thinking to myself, you too can have that knowledge. It's, it's not just bestowed on me. It's bestowed on all of us. Every deacon and every Christian should strive to be able to say with Paul, for our boasting is this, the testimony of our conscience that the holiness and godly sincerity, not in fleshly wisdom, but in the grace of God, we have conducted ourselves in this world and especially toward you, our brothers and sisters. The fact that deacons must hold to the mysteries of the faith implies that they must be students of the word of God. Must be. Deacons must not just be stewards of doctrine. They are to be uh, practitioners of it. What good does it do? What good does it do if, if you know truth, but you don't live truth? What good is that? You know, this isn't a case where you do as I say. Not as I do. And first of all, that should never come out of a father's mouth. Be keeping a godly life and true doctrine. By keeping a godly life and true doctrine, Timothy would save himself and those who listen to him. Why? Because in 1 Timothy 4.16 it says, Be conscientious about how you live and what you teach. 
Persevere in this because by doing so you will save both yourself and those who listen to you. How do we say, how was he talking about saving himself? He doesn't mean he could save himself. What he's saying is by, uh, uh, by uh, accepting Christ as Savior, Christ saved him through the mysteries of the faith. He understood that. And by presenting that, God was using him to save others. Christian, he puts people in your life and in your path so that you can share the gospel. And please, and I'm not picking on anybody here, but I hear this so often. Pastor, I, I, I just don't know if I can share the gospel because I can't answer their questions. And my question to you is, why not? Why can't you answer those questions? That excuse is good when you became a Christian yesterday. That's a good excuse. But when you've been a Christian for 10 and 20 years... And you tell me that I can't answer that question? I'm thinking, well, why not? Well, let me, let's look. Are you involved in a Sunday school? Do you, are, have you been discipled? Are you willing to come and be taught week after week by the word of God from the pulpit and by a woman or man of your sex that comes in and sits down with you and shares the gospel and the, and the truths and the mysteries of the faith? Or are you just content in saying, well, you know what? Uh, God just made me the way I am, and um, I'm just going to just, gonna just, just live my life. Well, that's fine, Christian. He did make you the way you are, but don't ever settle. We don't, you don't ever tell your kids to settle. How many of you parents in here right now, if your kid walked up to you today and said, you know what? Uh, you know what I want to do when I grow up? Be a bum. Uh, you know, I'm not good in math, Mom, Dad. I'm, I'm just going to be a bum. And you go, oh, that's okay, dear. I just love you the way you are. I don't expect you to grow at all. But that's what we do to God. God, you saved me. I'm just going to be a bum. I'm just going to sit here and just be ignorant. No, Christian, strive to... <laughs> okay, I may be a little prejudiced here, but I don't think there's a finer place that you can find in our community to grow in Christ and to be fed than right here at Grace Harvest. Right here. This is a special place, not because of me, but because of you. And your desire to love and to serve Him. Dignified, sincere, sober, not greedy, mature in the faith, blameless, beyond reproach. You know, he added this, he gives this to the deacons, he gave it to the elders, and he's saying to the deacons too, that they must be blameless. Now that doesn't mean they're perfect, don't go, well, I, I, I know that person. I know you, Pastor Mark. You're not perfect. Well, no, I'm not perfect. But, but is there a pattern in my life that says he's not blameless? And that's what needs to be said in all of our lives, Christian. Don't let them point a finger at us and point a finger at God. Why would I listen to you? You're just a drunk. However, the spiritual requirements... Here for, for deacon and elder, you know, it's amazing that he wants it to be the same. That means that we should strive to not have anything in our lives that would cause discredit upon the cross. And being a deacon requires also that, you have, that your wife, if you're married, we're going we're gonna, to uh, lay hands on a man today who, who is not married, but to the men who are married, they, their wife has to exhibit godly lifestyle the deacon's wife must be dignified not malicious gossips but temperate faithful in all things the wife will be told information from her husband because we will ask the husband and the wife to pray for it we with the expectation that the wife is not going to get on a text message or the husband is not going to get a text message and send it out and say guess what i just heard we must make sure that th those that serve God and, and their, their, their wives also understand that calling. In other words, a deacon's wife must not hinder her husband's calling. One of the things that we've seen here at Grace Harvest over the years is, if, if I've heard this once, I've heard it a hundred times, uh, Kathy is the perfect pastor's wife, perfect shepherd's wife. Matter of fact, Pastor, we put up with you because you're married to her. And I believe that. But one thing my wife has never done is hinder my ministry. I've never had my wife tell me, you can't go out and minister to that person. I've never had to explain to my wife that I have to leave and go 
minister to this family or go be with this person. She never objects when I get a text message and a phone call in the middle of the time we're supposed to be together. And I answer that call. Or, Excuse me, babe, I've got to go make a phone call. Happened last night. So when, when those things happen, it's because my ministry is successful because I have a wife that understands what God has placed me in, and therefore she is the perfect ministry partner. And Kathy has her ministry. And over the years, many of you have been blessed by it. Many of you don't know my wife before she got Parkinson's. She used to teach here on a regular basis. And I see women nodding their head, how much they appreciated my wife's wisdom and understanding. And it, God put her in a place where she can't do those things. But I can tell you what she does do for me. She prays for me. She's there to support me. She's there to love me. And she does everything she can. And there's not a visitor in here who hasn't walked up and met my spot. Matter of fact, we have a visitor today, and she said, she started talking about church, and she goes, and I love your wife. That's a blessing. Wives, understand you are a blessing to your husband's ministry when they're called to serve as deacons. And they should be moral. So you should be dignified, sincere, sober, not greedy, mature in the faith, blameless, have a godly wife, and be moral. Deacons must be husbands of only one wife. What is he talking about here? Why did you say moral, pastor? Because I want you to understand something. He's not talking about the marital status of a man being divorced. He's talking about the purity of the man's sex life is what he's talking about here. He needs to understand that if he is married, that is his woman. I don't mean to put it like that, but you know what I mean. <laughs> That's his wife. That's who he is intimate with. No other, mentally or physically. That's his wife. You are sexually pure. And that's what a husband is to be. And that's what a deacon is to be. And that's what every Christian man is to be. They must not be unfaithful to their wives, even their actual conduct with, with other women or in their minds. As with elders, the issue is more character, not marital status. They should be models of sexual purity. The, the failure of, to be a one-woman man has put more men out of the ministry than any other sin. It is, it, is, it is such a matter of grave concern. Your pastor, as you know, if you sat down with me, and, I, and I, I will not text a woman without texting my wife with her or your husband. I will not go in a car with you anywhere by myself with another woman. Unless it's my daughter or my, grand, my granddaughters or my wife. I'm not going to do that. Even when I go out with my daughter, if I go out to lunch with her in the past, I, I've made a big deal about saying things like, because uh, you should see them waitresses look at you when you're, there's my daughter, and here's this dirty old man taking this young lady out to lunch. And I'm like, uh, excuse me, Crystal, what do you think mommy would like here at this restaurant? And you see the waitress, oh, okay, well, uh, I won't put arsenic in your drink now. But you know what, men, if you were more careful with that, ladies as well, there would be a whole lot less chances of infidelity within marriages. If you would set, if you would set, set those barriers in your life, that, that you've made a determination. That when, when the church was very young, and I know I've told this story before, but, but, but when the church was very young, I had a, had a woman in the church, no longer here, and she needed to talk to me. They was having some domestic. And I said, Kathy's not home. We didn't have a church building back then. And, and I said, I'll talk to you out on the front stoop in, my, in the front of my house. And I lived in the grove, and literally there's three houses in the side of this room. You know, you just reach out and touch each other, right? And she comes up, and, and, and I'm on the porch. And she says, are you going to let me in? I said, no, my wife's not home. What do you think, I'm going to jump you or something? And I, and I looked at her and I said, no, but you're not coming in my house. Why would, I, why, why would I let you, I'm in the house alone with another woman who's not my wife. I know some of you are thinking, man, you take these things a little bit far. No, no, I don't, because I know me. And if you're sitting here today and said that could never happen to my husband or never happen to my wife, you're fooling yourself because it can happen and does happen. And so put up those barriers, men and ladies. Put them up. You're committed to the one that God has given to you. Be moral. You're dignified. You're sincere. You're sober. You're not greedy. You're mature in the faith. You're blameless. A godly life. Have a godly wife and you're moral. And then they're called to manage their homes. Why is this important? 
leading their children in their own households well? Because if they can't lead them, how can they serve the body of Christ? Therefore, one of 1 Timothy 5, 4 says our first ministry is to what? Our family. Therefore, one who is unfaithful with shepherding their children, caring for their wife, and other aspects of the household management will be unfaithful serving the church. They cannot be expected to serve God if they're not serving their families first. And what I mean by that, God is our first priority, and God has called the fathers and husbands to shepherd their families. That's just the way he's done it. And, and, and dads, husbands, do you spend time with your wife studying God's Word together? Do you have a time of family worship? We brought this up over and over again. I hate to sound like a broken word, a record, but these are things that, that you should be doing. So don't be surprised when your kids one day do all this stupid stuff when you haven't spent any time. All you worry about them doing is, is, is playing video games or playing sports or whatever, but you don't spend time with them in the Word. All those other things have their place, but they shouldn't take the place of God in the house. So goes the Father, so goes the family. No doubt one of the major areas Christ will look at when judging the faithfulness of his servants is their family life. Fathers, did you train up your children in the Lord? Do you love them and provide for them? Sadly, too many of us have had bad priorities raising our children. Do you prioritize work and friendships and entertainment before your family? If so, you'll be found unfaithful in what God has called you to do. Faithful servants care for their families first. Why do you think that I devote so much energy and time to this family? Because God has called me in a time in life when I don't have any children at home. They're all adults. They're on their own. And the ones who don't know Christ, I pray for them faithfully every day. But yet I don't, I'm not responsible for raising anybody in my house any longer. And so now God has put my whole emphasis on you, this body at Grace Harvest. You, my brothers and sisters in Christ, I am called to shepherd you. I am called to pray for you. I am called to love you. I am called to correct you when correction needs. I am called to encourage you when encouragement needs to be done. I am there for your, as your resource, whatever you need. And, and, and understand this, the elders all are the same way. Every one of us as a man understands that we are set apart from God to take care of God's flock. And some of us, have, I mean, Pastor Brian has a young family, and so it's double responsibility for him. Not only is he to shepherd his own family, but he has also the responsibility to shepherd you as well. You see, we take that seriously. Christians, if we took the shepherding role as fathers, we would have so much more peace and joy in our own families. I pray that that's your desire. Are you running your household well? Are you cultivating the faith of a family? Is your family first or is it everything else in life? So to... to, to Summarize again, to, to go over those nine things. Dignified, sincere, sober, not greedy, mature in the faith, blameless, have a godly wife, moral, and manage their homes. And what you'll see in just a moment is these men will come forward and they have been tested in these areas. But let, let's finish this. After listening to the qualifications for those who serve in this official capacity, Paul lists the reward, 1 Timothy 3.13. For those who have served well as deacons obtain for themselves a high standard and great boldness in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. A high standing probably refers to, to respect in the church along with good standing in God's sight. God looks at this and says, well done. Jesus humbled himself by becoming a servant and godly, highly exalted him, Philippians chapter 2 tells us. The Lord promised that all who serve him, all who serve him will be rewarded both in this life and in eternity. You know, the reward I get from serving you is such contentment and peace that, that, that I don't deserve. I have so much joy in my life as I see Christ grow in you. I don't deserve any of that. And that's part of that. You see, we're always looking for reward like, where's the money? Where's the money? Where's the new things? Where's the luxury? And that, 
That's the wrong attitude to have, Christian. The, the reward that we have is joy and peace in this life that passes all understanding. He said in Matthew 23, 12, Whoever exalts himself shall be humbled, and whoever humbles himself shall be exalted. The Lord will reward the person who humbles himself and serves faithfully as a deacon. Even if the church doesn't notice that man's faithful work, he's here in the middle of, the, of a storm fixing something. He comes out here on a Saturday, he's doing something. He's in there in the middle of the night coming here because the alarm's gone off. He's here and he's doing something and nobody notices, but God notices. And that should be the attitude of every Christian. The faith that is in Christ Jesus refers to the sphere of Christian truth in the family of believers. Successful service breeds confidence and assurance among the people served. Those who serve God well and see His power and grace functioning in their lives will be emboldened for even greater service. You see, it's always about what we're doing for God and not about us. So Christian, I, I, I pray that every one of us strives to have this, these characters, characteristics in our own life. And especially for the men that God has set aside today. And in just a moment, we will have them and their wives of the two that are married, and they'll come forward. But before that, we have our time of invitation. And as Pastor Cal and Gina make their way up front, I want you to be thinking, folks, right now about what God has has done in your life. And I'd ask you, in these areas that you fall short, and that's just between you and Him, is there a desire to change? I pray there is. And I pray that you would confess that to Him this morning. And God may be speaking to you a way this morning that I can never imagine. I'll be up here in just a moment. If you want to come and to ask me to pray with you, I will do that. If God has called you to saving faith, if you have trusted in Him, the Bible tells us that, that we are not ashamed of Him, so we make that public. We confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord, and we believe in our heart that He's raised from the dead. If God has, has called you to be His. You come forward, you grab this preacher by the hand. If you've never followed the Lord in believer's baptism, baptism is not requirement for salvation, but is the first act of obedience. Repent, believe, and be baptized. However God's leading you, if God's called you, we had one join this morning. Kathy Dowdy joined the church this morning. I pray that if there's anybody that God has, has convicted you, that you need to be belong to a local body who will help you in your walk, hold you accountable in a place that you can serve. pray that you make it this place. Father, I thank you so much for the proclamation of your word this morning. I pray, Father, that your will would be done. In Jesus' precious name, amen.